0: We're right in the middle of a mini-series we've called Jesus and the God of the Old Testament. And the reason we've been focusing on this idea is because Mark seems to be doing the same. Uh, he's been bringing about and organizing uh, his story that he is telling, as well as using verbal cues to connect Jesus' ministry in the first century with the history of God's moving throughout Israel. Uh, and this morning, it's not so much about healings and miracles as we've seen the past few chapters, and we will see again in the weeks to come, but another, uh, an, another argument, another debate that Jesus has with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And it ultimately comes down to issues of what does God require of his people, and specifically, what does a life of holiness look like? Now, if you read the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what we sometimes call the Pentateuch, which just means the five books, or the books of Moses, uh, if you read those books, you will see holiness is a repeated and emphasized idea both for who God is and for his destiny, his plans, his purpose for Israel. So he says, after bringing them out of Egypt, be holy because I am holy. If you want a summary for what God asks of Israel, holiness is a pretty good deal. okay? And that's specifically what this debate is about this morning. Um, and in looking at this, we'll come to understand what it is uh, or how it is that we are made holy. Now, the word holy is a word you're probably familiar with hearing, uh, but we don't always think about what it means, and what it means very simply is separation. Distinct, different, kept apart, other. That's the general idea of holy, and one of the things required for sinful and human people living in a fallen world when it comes to holiness is a path towards cleansing, okay? The Bible doesn't assume that we are born shiny and new and perfect and untouched. Uh, It doesn't assume that our environment is, you know, like a lab, hermetically sealed off and completely free of contagion. Uh, And so going through life is dirtying business. And remember, I'm not talking here about hygiene. I'm talking about holiness. I'm talking about... Uh, about clean clean living on the level of righteousness, on the level of a relationship with God. But nonetheless, cleansing becomes a significant issue. And so here, as we read, I want you to notice three things that are a clear emphasis uh, that are the lines of the debate, three words or concepts that will just pop off the page if you watch for it. One uh, is this label that Jesus uses, hypocrite. Okay. Now, there is a common word. In fact, it's an intriguing thing, isn't it? That that's one of the primary critiques non-Christians make about the church, is their hypocrisy, which is fine and right. We just need to understand this morning that that is one of Christianity's self-diagnosis tools. Okay. Jesus here coins that word. Generally, traditionally, the word comes from the realm of Greek drama, Okay, the hupokritos were the ones who put on masks. You remember the masks, the tragedian masks that you see to represent theaters? Okay, Uh, when you're in a big amphitheater and you've got people acting on stage, seeing their facial expressions is limited. And so this one form of Greek drama utilized masks to overexpress human emotions. So even in the back seats, you could tell what was going on humanly, okay? Jesus takes that idea of the mask wearers, that's what this word means, and he applies it to the religious leaders of Israel's day. Okay. The second thing I want you to notice is the inside-outside idea, that what, what the Pharisees focus on are externalities, and Jesus focuses on internalities. Okay? And then finally, and relatedly, is this idea of the heart. Okay? You'll notice that the passage that Isaiah... Uh, Uh, that Jesus quotes from Isaiah, deals with the heart. You'll notice that it comes up in his instruction uh, as it it goes on further. These are kind of the central ideas and concepts here. So with that being said, let's read the passage together and then we'll pray. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said, "'Hear me, all of you, and understand, "'there is nothing outside a person "'that by going into him can defile him, "'but the things that come out of a person "'are what defile him.' "'And when he entered the house and left the people, "'his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said, "'Then are you also without understanding? "'Do you not see that whatever goes into a person "'from outside cannot defile him, "'since it enters his heart?' But his stomach, not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Lord, Psalm 15 asks, Who can enter into your presence? It says, Who can summit, who can climb your holy hill? And it says, The one whose hands are clean, the one who is holy themselves. Lord, if we desire to be in your presence, Uh, We have a problem as human beings. We are in need of cleansing. We are in need of holiness. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us not only in the right and proper way of being clean, but also these continuous dangers that we have as human beings of creating new ways, new ways of cleansing that don't bring cleansing, but condemnation. We pray this in your name. Amen. So notice the prompting of this question from the Pharisees, and this is the second time Mark has given us uh, a, uh, a moment in time like this where the religious leaders come to inspect Jesus and criticize, and they have quite a lot in common. The first time, uh, Jesus and his disciples are passing through a field on the Sabbath And they're eating as they go along from the grain that is in the field. And the Pharisees come and they say, why do your disciples eat grain on the Sabbath? And the problem there being that by eating the grain, by chewing it up, they're doing work. When the Old Testament says to do no work on the Sabbath. Here, in a similar way, he says, why do you and your disciples neglect the washing of hands before you eat. And again, this is not about personal hygiene. This is about ritual cleansing, okay? Now, here's kind of the history of where this belief comes from. There are, in the book of Leviticus, particular situations that require physical washing. And the one that prompted this practice of the Pharisees has to do with the priests. The priests, before they offer a sacrifice to God, were required to wash themselves, again, not hygienically, but ceremonially, recognizing their need for cleansing and externally ritualizing that need before offering the sacrifices. And so the logic went, well, if we are all in some way priests, because uh, the Old Testament says that we are a kingdom of priests, And if everything we do is an act of worship and if we come before our meal, right, and it started to build and to grow and it became a relatively intricate system. And so the average washing, the daily requirement was different than if you went to certain places. Mark mentioned specifically here uh, when they come from the marketplace, okay, because who knows what you'll bump into at the marketplace. It could be all sorts of terrible types of people. And so they had specific cleansing for when you went to specific places. And so the criticism here is that the disciples, whether or not they, you know, wash their hands with soap and water, don't go through the ritual practice that had become kind of standard fare for the respectable religious people in Israel. Again, remember here, the Pharisees' uh, question is not merely, why do you guys do things differently than we do? It's, aha, Why don't you respect the traditions of the elders, okay? Now, here's the other thing you have to understand about tradition. And I think I can do this without quoting Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof, okay? Tradition became very significant to the Jews, especially after their exile, okay? So, the nation of Israel existed. If you read through First and Second Kings, you see that it falls into corruption, no longer keeps the ways that God has led. He sends prophets to warn them of consequence, and the consequence is they're removed from the land. Okay, that got the entire nation's attention. That's where actually the synagogue that is still the Jewish practice of wor- worship across the world begins, because they had no temple, they had no priesthood, they needed a way to stay distinct, Okay. During that time, the Babylonian exile, they began to write commentaries on the Old Testament. And then, later during that period, they began to write commentaries on the commentaries of the Old Testament, and through that became an entire new system of living. And they called this final product, the commentary on the commentary, the Mishnah, okay, And according to the Mishnah's own reporting, it was to be a fence around the law, okay? So it was to keep you from ever accidentally slipping across the boundaries of what God had denied, okay? It was additional rules to to make sure that holiness was a priority to protect Israel from ever going the way of exile again, okay? All of these ideas are here. These traditions became so important that some of the rabbis in the Mishnah and other places uphold it equal to scripture and sometimes even above scripture. And so here they are seeing this as evidence of Jesus' unfaithfulness, unrighteousness, and damning of his ministry. Which is what they've been looking for, a way to write Jesus off and, as we'll see eventually, to full-on condemn him to death. And so it's a pretty significant question. Now, uh, notice here a couple of things. First off, in verse 3, Mark gives us an editorial comment. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders... That's the Mishnah and things like it. And when they come from the marketplace, do they, not, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Okay. And here's the big question, verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus' first response in verse 6 is to label them hypocrites. Okay. Now, this is a common criticism that Jesus gives of the religious leaders of his day, and he does it not just in this language, but in some other ways that I think are helpful to wrap our mind around what Jesus is saying. In another place, he says, you religious leaders are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, fresh cone of paint. On the inside, rotten bodies. Okay. Outside, clean. Appearance, clean. Internally, completely different, okay? And I think we understand that when, when we utilize the language of hypocrisy, that's what we mean. You're not what you appear to be. You say that you are this, or you act like you are this, but in actuality, you are not, okay? But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just leave it with hypocrisy, but he roots it Uh, In the words of Isaiah, now if you want to better understand the context of Isaiah here, this comes from Isaiah 29, and interestingly enough, we just covered this a few weeks ago on Sunday night, and so you can look at the sermon library and find uh, the passage on Isaiah 29 and listen to it, but Jesus takes the language of Isaiah and he says, this seems applicable here, and notice what the quote says from Isaiah 29, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, let's connect some ideas. On one hand, we have tradition, the teachings of men. Next to that, we have ritual, externals, right? Outside practices of cleansing, of clothing, uh, traditions, right? Uh, And then finally, we have this idea of visibility and invisibility, right? Outside, externally, their criticism is, you are not uh, bearing the marks of holiness. We're not seeing what we should be seeing from a holy person. And here, Jesus uh, criticizes them with the words of Isaiah for something that we just generally can't see. The heart. We can change the way we dress and the way we behave and the way we present ourselves. Okay. But we can't see to the level of someone else's heart. Okay. We don't have that ability to assess and analyze and see inside. And here, Isaiah says, everything looks fine on the outside, but the inside is totally wrong. Again, when we use the language of a hypocrite, that's exactly what we mean. Okay. We mean there's an externality, emphasis on righteousness, emphasis on religion... There's no moral character to coincide with that. There's no reflecting. In fact, he says here, not only does he say the outside's not like the inside, but look at verse seven, in vain do they worship me. The idea of vanity there is that it's empty. It's just a gesture that means nothing, right? In vain do they worship me. And then notice this last statement here, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, Why does Isaiah and Jesus connect these two things, externalities and elevating human teaching to the level of divine ordinance? Why do they go together? Honestly, I don't know, but they always do. They always do, okay? What what Jesus is recognizing here is that what's become most significant to the Pharisees is never stated to be important to God. God doesn't put a value on these cleansings. If he had, he would have stated them, okay? It labels what God has revealed, God's word, God's commandments, as being insufficient for pleasing him. And therefore elevates these things to being just as significant, just as important. But what is the correlation there between uh, commandments of men or the traditions of the elders, these types of ideas, and elevating those and these ideas of cleansing. Here's what I think it is, okay? Why is it that ritual and tradition is so appealing to humanity? Because it is. Now, side note, Jesus isn't criticizing tradition, okay? Tradition is inescapable. Tradition is what it means when we decide to do anything together, right? So you can have a friendship tradition, You mark certain interesting things and significant things in the same way, and that might be as simple as going out for a drink or throwing a party or, you know, an annual road trip. As a family, you develop traditions. As a church community, as a nation, all of these things are traditions, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when the traditions become a certification of right and wrong. And the traditions become a distancing from people who do things differently than us. And that, especially when we tie it to who pleases God, what honors God, what holiness looks like, becomes in this realm. But if you've grown up in the church, you know what this looks like. You know how often the church has taken internal, even if they're longstanding traditions, and made those certifiable demonstrations of holiness the order that the service happens in, the elements that go into a church service, uh, the way that we dress or do not dress, okay? Let me remind you that the fact that most of us are dressed relatively casually sitting in these pews today is relatively new in American church history. And while that transition was going from Sunday best to general clothing there was a lot of talk about what was right and proper, what honored God, okay? Some of you are old enough to remember these conversations, okay? Throughout church history, the instrumentation that's involved in worship has evolved, and every time it has evolved, there have been boundary markers and gatekeepers who said, hey, wait a minute, there's nothing holy about a drum kit. And just a side note, there was a time where they said there's nothing holy about an organ, okay? Because the organ was for pubs, and it was brought into the church, and it was problematic in its time. Okay? This is just how the human heart works. We make traditions, they become important to us, and then they become most important to us, and that's where they do damage. In the same way, oftentimes these traditions become external markers of righteousness, of holiness, of goodness, of health. Okay? We tie those things together. It'd be very easy for us to mock the Jews for what's going on here and go, what a silly thing that you would make washing your hands a sign of godliness. Now, let's, side note, recognize how consistently this idea has maintained throughout history to the degree that some people really believe somewhere in the Bible it says that cleanliness is next to godliness, which it doesn't, okay? Right? But more importantly than that, we may not have these traditions, but we do have traditions, and that's true of non-religious groups of people, too. Okay, even in secular organizations, we begin to define what rightness and goodness and holiness looks like, and we condemn all those who don't have the outward manifestations of those things. We quickly categorize in and out, and therefore on the side of righteousness, and maybe it's not on God's side, maybe it's just on the right side of history. Okay, we do it in all sorts of ways, but it ultimately comes down to externalities. Why do we do this? I'm going to suggest to you something that you really know in your heart of hearts and may not have connected to this. It's because you know you're in need of cleansing. External manifestations of the need to be clean, to be distinct, to be different, to be right, and to be righteous are because we know on the inside that's not innate. It's missing. It's something that needs to be strived for. Now, you may describe that in terms of a hostile environment, that you are trying to keep yourself pure. Or you may describe that as a need for the impurities that you feel to be dealt with. Okay? In other words, if I could use another common word that we use for this today, what we're talking about is religion. And I mean this in the limited sense that we mean it when we say that somebody is religious. Right? Almost always it means they've chosen particular behaviors. But why do we do that? Why do we pursue those things? Why do we elevate ourselves like the Pharisees do above other people? It's because of that need to be righteous. Okay. And the first thing that Jesus points out here is that it doesn't work. That you can get religious plastic surgery... And it will not change your eternal destiny. In fact, it won't stave off the corruption that you experience in your life. That's what we mean when we say hypocrite, right? People appear to have their lives together and then suddenly the scandal is revealed and we go, I knew it, right? But we come to these places because we are looking for a way of holiness we are looking for a way of cleansing, a means to live rightly, to do rightly, to be right, to be seen as right before God, but the problem is it doesn't work, and that's the thing. This is actually, I think, the most scary thing about hypocrisy, okay? These external forms of righteousness cannot save you, but they can absolutely damn others, because the thing about hypocrisy is that it's contagious, okay? Because, once again, we all sense that need for cleansing. Very few of us ever come to God strutting into God's presence and going, God, here I am. I know you've been waiting for me, right? We come because we have needs, we have longings, we have problems, we have issues, we have sins. We're, we want to know the right way to deal with those things, And so what happens? We come into a group of people and we look around and we go, this doesn't look like me at all. It's exposing. It's vulnerable. It's confusing. And we may not know it, but what we're seeing is a bunch of masks. And we go, I guess this is what holiness looks like. And we throw up a mask as well. There's a contagion factor that's going on here. Why is Jesus so serious with the Pharisees? Because they are, as he calls them in another place, like blind men leading the blind. He says, won't you both fall into a ditch? Okay. This is what's so scary about the idea of man-made religion. Of us humanly, on our own, going, this is what righteousness looks like, and seeking to live by that. Not only, if we get it wrong, is it wrong, but also there will be those who follow in our wake. Okay. But there's more than this. The problem is not merely that they have elevated the doctrines of men to the same status as the commandments of God, but also that in doing so, by nature of that, they've actually begun to deny the commandments of God. Look at what Jesus says next. He says, verse eight, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So in other words, this isn't just a problem of addition. Jesus isn't just saying, How is it that you add to God's word and put that as a heavy burden on other people? He says, how is it that you subtract, after you're done with that, the very word of God himself? Now, at first glance, if we're honest and and if we give people the benefit of the doubt, that's kind of surprising. You would expect the most zealous religious people to be the most firm on scripture and then just add things to the top. But Jesus points out something psychologically here that is inevitable even if it seems counterintuitive, which is that if there's a God-made system and a man-made system, they're incompatible. They can't go together. They can't fit together. You put yourself in a place where you're trying to do two things, okay? One thing that I think that is helpful to remember here, okay? is that right and wrong are not just doing the right things and not doing the wrong things, but also not neglecting to do the right things, okay? There, there is an, a sin of omission just as much as there is a sin of commission. And so it's just as possible to overemphasize something and leave something else undone, and that's one of the criticisms that Jesus makes in another place. He says, in the small things, like tithing, You tithe mint and cumin, anything you grow in your garden, the smallest plant, and you count the leaves off of it, and you give one to the Lord out of every ten. He says, but you neglect the greater things of mercy and justice, right? There's a tipping of the scales of priority that happens here, okay? But it's even worse than that. It's not just not focusing rightly on the center things, keeping the main things the main things. It's actually loopholing and avoiding them entirely. And again, I'm not talking about them, I'm talking about us. This is as human nature as it gets. We set up a system of rules, and in doing so, we design the rules so that we can comfortably get what we want. Okay. In fact, a lot of times we design it so that we can get what we want and keep others from what we owe them. Okay. And that's what was going on in Jesus' illustration here. Read it with me again. Verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles your father and mother must surely die. He quotes from Exodus and Deuteronomy here, okay? And that first one, you, you may recognize, that's at the dead center of the Ten Commandments, right? This is the heart and soul and foundation of the entire Old Testament commandments, entire Old Testament laws, okay? These are the ten words, the Decalogue. Jesus is not drawing from some obscure place for his illustration, but the very center. Okay. He says, you would all agree with this. You would all hold this. This is at the very beginning of God's commandments for us. Honor your father and mother. Now, let me be clear here, because this doesn't always convey. Honor your father and mother doesn't merely mean, in the Old Testament, to speak kindly or respectfully to your parents. Honor here means to give them everything they are due as your parents, okay? Which includes taking care of them when they are old, okay? There is a reciprocity in the design of family that your parents take care of you when you're born. When you're young, they raise you, and then as your parents are unable to take care of themselves, that you complete the circle, okay? And when it says here, that someone who reviles his parents is worthy of death, it's not just talking about saying, I hate you as a teenager and storming out of the room and it's like, well, now you gotta die. That's not the idea, okay? The idea is one of persistent and consistent rejection of what you owe your parents. Now, honestly, since we're dealing here, not with the traditions of men, but with the word of God, we need to recognize how easy it is in our culture to miss the significance of this. Right? Because we think of caring for the elderly as the government's job, or something that they accomplish through their own responsibility. Why didn't you save for retirement? Okay. Paul, in 1 Timothy, says that those who don't take care of their family are worse than a pagan. And he's speaking of children taking care of their elderly parents. That's the context. Okay? So we should weigh that. We should consider that. But notice how the Jews have responded to this. This is the important part for this morning. He says, here's the law. Here it's clearly stated. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Okay, and so Corban there just means gift. That's what the word means. It's a Hebrew word, okay? Uh, And so what, what had happened was you could take, say, a piece of property that you owned, and you could dedicate it to the Lord, okay? But the idea here is not that you'd sell it and give money to the church. It's worse than that. You would actually continue to have control of it and profit from it, because someday you were going to give it to God, okay? And so the idea here is you say, okay, so uh, Dad, remember this is an agrarian inheritance-oriented oriented, patriarchal culture, okay? So you're a son in the family, he gives you your inheritance, and then you take that same inheritance and you say, I'm not going to support you off of it because I've given it to God. And you're going to continue to take a profit on that land, to farm that land, to work with that land, and at some point in the future, give it up. Now, what else would we label that than Hypocrisy. It's a deep expression of religious devotion that denies the very heartbeat of God. It takes the cutting edge of what God requires of the people of Israel and turns it on its head and labels it holiness, righteousness, goodness. And we wonder why people can espouse such horrible hatred in the name of God. Is it not the same thing? This twisting that happens, again, is not just for religious nutbags. It is human nature. That's why Jesus says, listen, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says in the judgment, all I'm going to need to condemn you is your own judging of other people. Because we've got this loophole system worked out. And we're like, well, see, I have reasons for being this way because of A, B, and C. They are not justified, but I am in my behavior. And so they would go, look, I have basically a tax haven, a divine tax haven that prohibits me from taking care of my responsibilities. And I will tell you, although I can't tell you individually because these are heart things. Remember these are internals. This is us. See the problem? The problem with personal cleansing as human beings is not just that we start on the outside when the problem is inside and we just can't get deep enough. The problem is also that we are so dirty, we're trying to wash our dirty hands with dirty hands. We're trying to cleanse our own life, but the life is what needs cleansing. Okay? We cannot wash ourselves without something to wash with. And so what happens is... <laughs> It's not even that we fall short of cleansing. It's not like we come in and go, well, I'm not you know, squeaky clean. We come in worse than we started in the name of God, in the name of holiness, in the name of righteousness. That's the problem. That's the issue. Okay? And so, notice what Jesus says this is, and it's clearly this. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, verse 13, thus making void... The word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do but again I want to remind you the reason we do this the reason we do this is because we know that we need cleansing we know that there's something wrong we know that there's something required of us that we aren't living up to in fact I think for many people and you've probably experienced this at one time or another you might be living in this place today righteousness is about appearance before other people if you can just convince the world that everything's okay then it must be if everyone has a high view of you and you have a solid reputation then how doesn't that get to be on your eternal resume jc ryle says this about hypocrisy he says it's not just a great sin but a great foolishness because the only people you can fool with hypocrisy don't get a vote And the only one you can't fool is the only one whose opinion matters. But notice how Jesus continues here. He's talked about this idea, their heart is far from, the outside is, is," and then he pushes it further. So he calls the audience to attention, verse 14. He called the people to him again and he said to them, hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Okay, another illustration. Here he just says, it's not things you put in your body that make you unclean. There's a source in your body causing the uncleanness, causing it to come out, okay? Now, I just want to nail down a traditions of men, self-righteousness, hypocritical idea that, that bears burden in all of our hearts, and it's just simply this, okay? we are so often convinced that the greatest threat to our goodness is somewhere out there. Okay? And so self-righteous people condemn others for somehow being a terrible temptation. They avoid others because that way they can keep themselves pure. They don't go to this place or to that place because somehow that is the greatest threat. And Jesus says, no, actually, the origin of all sin If all uncleanness in your life is internal, not external. Temptation is not your greatest weakness. Your proclivity to give in to temptation is your greatest weakness. Jesus was tempted in all ways yet without sin. Sin found no purchase in the soil of his heart. Our hearts are different. We have an inherent and inherited proclivity sin the bible calls this the flesh okay because it's just the natural you and the natural you is not divine is not holy now look how jesus pushes this further he gives this parable and i want you to remember here you got to pause and remember something the legal code in the old testament includes the book of leviticus which means there are external defilements are there not Right? Kosher law is all about don't eat these things because they will defile you. You will become unclean. So what Jesus says here is not just profound, it's tremendously provocative. Earlier, it's been the traditions of men. And he can say, show me in the scriptures where it requires me to wash my hands. But now he says, nothing you put in your body defiles you. What? Wait. How does this work? He pushes further, and so verse... Uh, 17 when he entered the house and left the people his disciples asked him about the parable why because of what i just mentioned to you they're like wait how is it that external things don't defile you what you put in your body doesn't defile you chapter and verse they can lay it all on the table and notice what jesus says here verse 18 he said to him then are you not also without understanding do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. What you eat doesn't make you unclean because it doesn't become part of you. It just passes through your digestive system and it's over. Notice here he uses specifically the concept of food. Holiness for the Jews for thousands of years, biblically mandated, had required that they avoid certain foods and therefore keep themselves distinct from the people around them. And here Jesus seems to say something completely contradictory to that. Now, are you noticing the tension on where we're going? How is it possible that he can condemn others for denying the word of God and maintaining their own traditions and then seem to set up a new way of life? But notice importantly here what he says in verse... uh, First off, Mark wants us to get that picture. He wants us to understand that. Do you see the parenthetical there? Do you see Mark's additional comment? When Jesus said, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, thus, Mark tells us, he declared all foods clean. but I want you to notice what it says in verse 20 before we come back to that. He said, what comes out from a person defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. We call this a vice list. There's eight of them in the New Testament, okay? When you study them, you can see some organizational principles, but generally it's not meant to be exhaustive, and generally it's not meant to be specific to the need, okay? And so here's, here's the factors on this one here. First off, when you look over that uh, this list, you see two different things, okay? You see first Acts, and they're all in the plural in the Greek there, okay? Acts of sexual immorality, acts of theft, acts of murder, acts of adultery. That's stuff you do. But what follows is a bunch of uh, words, they're in the singular, and they're attitudinal, they're internal, okay? Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. Now, all of those things can have acts, but he's moving beneath the acts from the fruit. To the roots, okay? The other thing that's really interesting to notice is if you look at that first list, um, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, that is literally the Ten Commandments, okay? Almost in the same order they're given in the book of Exodus. That's commandments six through ten, just bing, 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 okay? He's drawing from that same place, but what is he saying? He's saying the origin of our problem with holiness that is directly incongruent with the core of God's law, is right here in your chest. Now, obviously, he's not talking about the internal organ, the heart. The idea of the heart here is your imagination. It's your will and desires. It is the internal part of your being. It is what Paul later calls the inner man. Okay. And so it begins at the core level of what you want is disordered. There are things you shouldn't want. There's things you want more than you should want. There's things you want less than you should want. And it is what you desire that determines what you do. Now, you might filter that through religious codes and systems so that it's more respectable. Or you might filter it through all sorts of deceits and privacy so it's more hidden. But the problem, he says, is right here. And that's a source of uncleanness. You know what this is like? It's like trying to clean up a river while it's actively being polluted. That's the problem. This is why it's so significant that we understand that Jesus doesn't come with another external set of rules. He doesn't come with a new way to follow him to be righteous. He doesn't just lay out an example. He doesn't set new standards. He doesn't go, their washing is almost right, but here's the real washing. He gets to the literal heart of the matter and he says this is the problem and that's where the solution lies what you need is not a way to be clean you need to be cleansed what you need is not a process of holiness you need to be made holy if you want to understand the human condition before a holy god it's not demonstrated anywhere better than isaiah chapter 6 When Isaiah sees God for who he really is, the throne room, all of the glory, all of the light, all of the power. And remember, at this point in the book, Isaiah is already a prophet of God, working as a minister. And he falls on his face and he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And there's nothing he can do to fix that. He can't say, hey, can we reschedule this till Tuesday? I've got to get some things straight and then I'll be able to stand in your presence. He's just there as a dead man laying on his face. And an angel takes a coal from the altar and brings it and he touches the lips of the prophet and makes him clean. We need that mediatorial work. This is why the Bible says that your condition apart from Christ is death. That's not something you can medicate. It's not something fixed by exercise. It is something that requires resurrection. Here, let me tie it together with Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. He says, what the law could not do in that it was made weak by the flesh. Okay, following the logic here. The law was ineffective in bringing about our salvation. Why? Because our hearts. We can know what, what we need to do. We can see what's required of us. We just can't do it. He says, what the law could not do in that it was made weak through the flesh, God did by taking on flesh. And condemning sin in the flesh. In other words, Jesus takes on a human body. And in that human body bears the condemnation of sin. The full penalty that we deserve. And then it goes on. It says, took on human flesh. Bore the penalty in the flesh. And made us righteous who walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Okay. So it's not, I've cleansed you from sin. Now be righteous. Righteous. This is still part of the same act that God has done. The law could not make you righteous. God has made you in Jesus Christ righteous, okay? This is why in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah and in the book of Ezekiel, it starts to talk about something new that God's going to do. The old covenant, the one given to Moses, the law as it was presented, God says, I'm going to give a new covenant and I'm going to write my law on your hearts, Not an external law, but an internal one. He says, I'm going to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to change you at the roots. I'm going to interrupt the source. I'm going to do a full and total cleansing. This is what we need. The simplest expression of Christianity is those words that Paul mentions. What you could not do, God has done in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not you getting your act together. Salvation is not you following in the footsteps of Jesus. Salvation is not taking this great act of sacrifice and going, I'll do better next time. It is receiving what you could not do that God has done for you freely and sovereignly in Jesus Christ. Now that still leaves us with the problem of how, in, how does that somehow eradicate what the Old Testament says. In fact... What is one of the tied ideas to our hypocrisy as a church? Cherry picking. You make a big deal out of these parts of the Old Testament or the New Testament and you ignore these. You're fine eating lobster, but you condemn us for our behavior. Right? Hypocrites. You don't even believe what your word actually says, but here's the thing. When people do that, they are subtracting from the significance of our salvation. Okay, let me lay a few pieces on the ground because this is a big move and it's one that a lot of us as Christians have not wrapped our head around, okay? One, the ritual aspects of the Old Testament law, external rites of cleansing, avoiding particular foods, dressing in particular ways, okay? All of that was to demonstrate internal truths. The order of the universe, the God who gives life, the need for separation, the need for cleansing, okay? They were external object lessons of internal realities, okay? Two, Jesus said, I did not come to lay the law aside, but to fulfill it. He came and he lived out the law perfectly, fully, completely, to such a degree that it was accomplished, fulfilled, completed, And that doesn't just mean that he never ate lobster so we can, okay? It means that everything that was pointed to in our need in the Old Testament law and everything that was pointed to in our solution in the Old Testament law personified Jesus himself. Read the book of Hebrews. Why do we not have priests as Christians? Because Jesus became our great high priest, the one that all other priesthoods were about. Why do we no longer offer animal sacrifices? Because Jesus was the one and true sacrifice, Why do we no longer seek ritual cleansing? Because we have been cleansed at the very heart of the issue. Okay. Remember that idea of new covenant? That's because the old covenant hasn't been thrown out. It's been fulfilled. Accomplished. So now God can do something new. He can offer us something new. And so to not understand that we no longer are held to those things is to belittle what was accomplished in Jesus Christ. And to hold people to your traditions of men and make additional necessities out of your personal convictions or your group's traditions and say these are required for righteousness denies the sufficiency of the cross of Christ and is nothing short, read the book of Galatians, of another gospel. Okay. Here's the thing. Jesus has the authority to do this because he's the lawgiver. And so it's totally right and appropriate for him to change the laws. One of the ways that I like to think about the move from the Old Testament to the New is like when you're standing in a crosswalk and it says, do not walk. When it flips to walk, none of us go, hey, wait a minute, this is so inconsistent. It said, do not walk, and now it says walk. That's a part and parcel of the way that thing is supposed to work. Don't walk now because, okay, now it's safe to walk. Israel was to be distinct from the nations, to await a savior, to learn the lessons so that when Jesus came, they went, we know what this is because we know what a sacrifice is. What does John do? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he know that's who Jesus is? Because he's seen a thousand sin offering lambs before. He goes, ah, oh, this is the one that they were all about. Okay. It all culminates. It's all revealed. It's all pointing to. It's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ so we now live in the walk phase, okay? Now, what does this mean for us? A couple of things. First off, again, there's nothing wrong with traditions and there's nothing wrong with convictions. All of us have different stories, we've come from different places, we have different lives. It's totally right for you to sometimes set up a boundary, a fence, and say, for me this is not okay. For me, this is how I express these things, to take general principles of who God is and seek to manifest them in every area of your life. That's totally fine. Paul has no problem even with circumcision as long as it's not become a gateway of if you're right or wrong, of if you're inside or outside. He says, Jews, if, if you're circumcised, don't think about it. Gentiles, if you're not circumcised, don't think about it, right? Consider this with me. How rigidly is worship prescribed in the Old Testament? The traditions laid out, the external manifestations, the order of ceremonies. There's entire books of the Bible devoted to that. Leviticus twice goes through the sacrifices and says, okay, here's how the sacrifice works. Now, you high priest, here's how you do it. It's an instruction manual, okay? Where do we have that in the New Testament? Where does the New Testament tell us how we should dress or what a church service looks like, or what type of place we should meet in as Christians. Why is it that churches have debated for so long appropriate leadership structures in churches? Because the Bible in the New Testament devotes zero effort to describing the externals of Christian worship. I love how John Piper puts it. He says, in the Old Testament, it was a come and see religion. In the New Testament, it's a go and tell religion. God's plan moves forward in Jesus Christ and it begins to express itself in a diverse and unifying way that is glorifying to God and it's one that we can lean into because there's been a heart change. Okay. Now this doesn't mean that you can justify any behavior that you like because you're a Christian and Jesus paid for it so you can go to the strip club because it's not what's outside, it's inside. right? That's not the idea here. The idea isn't that we can be... Uh, be foolish in these things or that we can escape righteousness altogether. Paul asked this question in Romans chapter 6. He says, if God's made you alive, why would you continue in sin? Okay, This idea that, well, since we have forgiveness, I should just sin it up and then I can get the best of both worlds, all the enjoyment of sin here and all the freedom from it there. That's a misunderstanding, Paul says. Okay, But... We need to watch out for this pervasive reality of codifying righteousness based on human ideas and traditions and using it to demonstrate our goodness and using it to condemn others. And here's why. Here's what you need to do if you find that in your own life you need to reacquaint yourself with what Jesus has done for you. Remember, what's our instinct? Why do we do that? It's because we feel the need for cleansing the deeper your understanding of God's grace and what he's accomplished in Jesus Christ, the freer your life will be. Not the less devoted. Not the less pursuing righteousness. But you will not get caught in the hypocrite trap. You will not become a Pharisee. Because a Pharisee comes and says either one of two things. If I don't do these things, God will reject me. Or because I've done these things, God will receive me. Neither of those have anything to do with the gospel. Your need was so great, there's nothing you can do to fix it, and God did it in Jesus Christ. But God's love is so great that he was willing to do it on your behalf. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I understand the questions and the concerns. I understand the danger of cherry-picking, and I'm fully acquainted with the fact that there is plenty of hypocrisy in the church. But again, I would exhort you to recognize that that is an internal, Christ-given tool. And that no amount of hypocrisy is going to justify your own internal rejection. Because the problem is not out there. The danger for you is not the hypocrites, it's your own heart. And I would encourage you to understand that when you criticize us collectively for cherry-picking the scriptures. What you're asking us to do is diminish the significance of our own Savior's cross, which is the heartbeat and the reality of who we are and what we believe. It's not fringe issues. It's at the center. And for all of us, God has opened a way of cleansing. Let us be clean and be done with it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your holiness is not a bug. It's not a defect. It's by the design. And it's one of the best things about you, Lord. Your inability to tolerate sin is a thorough commitment to life and flourishing and yet you didn't leave us as liabilities outside your kingdom and just give up on us and walk away. Instead, you entered in to our broken earth. You donned upon yourself our broken bodies. You came on a mission of compassion and love and yet still a mission of holiness. And so when you touched lepers, you didn't become unclean. You made them clean. And in the same way, Lord, when you touch our lives, you're not contaminated by it. You decontaminate us. We thank you. We praise you for that. We ask that you forgive us for neglecting these truths and settling for human traditions as badges of righteousness. Lord, we don't need any of that. Because you've made our hearts right. And you will continue to do so pray, Lord, that you would protect us from hypocrisy. Forgive us for when we've been part of that problem. But it's not because we're too into Christianity. It's because we understand it so little. Take us deeper, Lord, into your righteousness. Help us to understand what Paul says, because these things are true, because we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to live as free and to invite people joyfully into that freedom. We just ask that you would do that work in Jesus' name. Amen.